So there's a movie that came out about four years ago. You've probably heard of it. It's called Avatar. Uh, I finally just watched it. I'm a little behind the times. I still haven't watched Titanic, though. And I pretty much promised I never will. But I did watch Avatar a couple weeks ago. Um, it's, I guess it's the number one box office you know, generator of all time. It's, it's top, top of the list. Uh, but it's, you don't have to have seen it to understand what I'm going to talk about here. It's, it tells the story of an alien race on an alien planet, and uh, they live in perfect harmony on this beautiful planet of Pandora. It's, uh, it's really stunning visuals. They've done a great job of creating this world that's beautiful and, and fantastic and really feels perfect. Uh, and In fact, it was so beautiful that when it first came out and people went to see it in the theater, there were reports of some people being depressed and even suicidal after watching the movie because they were so let down uh, from, from that experience. So one guy said, when I woke up this morning after watching Avatar for the first time yesterday, the world seemed gray. It was like my whole life, everything I've done and worked for lost its meaning. It just seems so meaningless. I don't see any reason to keep doing things at all. I live in a dying world. Uh, and there was another guy who said, one can say my depression was twofold. I was depressed because I really wanted to live in Pandora, which seemed like such a perfect place, but I was also depressed and disgusted with the sight of our world, what we've done to Earth. I so much wanted to escape reality. So those are, those are pretty strong reactions to, to a movie, right? Uh, and, and yet I'm not totally surprised by these reactions uh, because it is just a movie, but it taps into a deeper part of our nature, a deeper part of reality, uh, it's that, that we have this longing in us. All of us have a longing for the perfect world. We all have a deep desire in our, in our hearts for this world that's perfect in beauty and in significance and, and full of love and, and unity. We, we want that. Uh, and for some people, watching Avatar met that need for about two and a half hours and then they had to walk out of the theater uh, into a strip mall, you know, or to see garbage on the ground, or to be reminded they've got to go home to, to their sick kids, or to their unsatisfying job, or their, you know, the answering machine message that says their girlfriend just dumped them. And they're reminded the world is not perfect. I have a longing for this world. There's there's a desire for a perfect world, but, but this world isn't it. Uh, and, and even if you have never seen Avatar, even if you didn't love it, um, uh, you have this longing. You know in your heart that there's a world that, that you want to be perfect. And, and as you look around in this world, you see as great as it is, sometimes, this world's not perfect. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So what happened? How did we get here? Uh, well, what we're doing right now is we're, we're on a five-week journey through the whole Bible. And uh, we're going to speed up a little bit, but for these first two weeks, we're just looking at three chapters. And what we saw last week in the first two chapters of Genesis is that the reason why all of us have a longing for a perfect world is because when the world was created, it was perfect. We long for a perfect world because we were created for a perfect world, in a perfect world. We saw that there was this world of absolute beauty and, and meaning and purpose and love, and this is how life was supposed to be in the first two chapters. Uh, 
But as we keep reading in Genesis to the third chapter, we see what went wrong. We see that, that everything that's disappointing in this world, every, you know, all, the, all the sickness, the death, you know, the very fact that we have weeds and thistles uh, and hurricanes and tornadoes and cancer, all of this, everything that's wrong with this world boils down to the fact that we've lost our relationship with God. Everything wrong with the world comes from the fact that we've lost our relationship with God. So we're going to pick up the story and explain how that works out. You might notice in your note-taking outlines today, it's just a blank sheet of paper. I'm encouraging you to take notes if you want to or to just listen because I'm just telling you the story this morning. We're going to go over the story of Genesis and see what is wrong with the world. Why do we have sickness and death and weeds? So if you've got your Bibles, open up to the first page, pretty much. Uh, We're going to be in Genesis 2 and 3 this morning. In Genesis 1, we saw that God made everything perfect. And then in Genesis 2, we we get an expansion of the sixth day. So this is a a fuller picture of what's going on on that sixth day when God creates man and woman. Here's a creation of people. He makes Adam first, and then he creates Eve. Uh, But something that we skipped last week that I want to go back to today is the fact that before God makes Eve, God gives Adam a command. This is in Genesis 2, starting at verse 15. Then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. There are two trees in the middle of the garden of Eden. One of them is the tree of life. The other one is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here we see God giving Adam a command. He says, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a pretty simple, clear command. And he gives a consequence for it. He says, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Before we go on, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and anticipate a couple of questions that would probably come up later. But uh, the, the important questions, you read this and it's kind of out of nowhere. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what is that? What is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What does that even mean? And then why? Why would God do this? Why would God create a garden and put a tree in the middle of it and say, don't eat it. That's what my friends said this week. Isn't that kind of like putting a candy tree in your backyard and telling your kids, don't have any of that? Why, why would you even put it there? What's going on? Uh, the, the first question, what is this tree, in fact? What's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? There have been different answers uh, proposed over the years by different people. The best one that seems to be out today is this, that the knowledge of good and evil, uh, the, you know, what does it mean to have knowledge of good and evil? It's, it's the ability to decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. Okay, you've got the, the knowledge of the discernment to decide what is good and what is evil. Uh, and, and really, this is a knowledge that only God can, can really have, ultimately. God's the one who gets to say, this is good, this is evil. God's got that perfect knowledge to always say this is what's good, this is what's evil. Uh, So if you don't have that knowledge, as a creature, your responsibility is to hear from God when God says this is good, this is evil, and you say, okay, 
That's good. That's evil. I, I, I'll, I'll go with that. If you have the knowledge of good and evil on your own, or you think you've got it, then what you do is you look at a situation and you say, I think this is good in the situation, or I think this is evil in the situation. Uh, now, that feels more familiar to us because we, we, live, we live after all these events have happened. So, I mean, we, we live in this, in this realm, this time period, where we think that we have the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we claim that. We say, I can figure for myself what's good, what's wrong, what's, what's right, what's evil. You know, I, I can decide that. But, but you, you know, we screw that up a lot. We talked about this in the Proverbs study some. There's, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. We, we think we can decide what's right and what's wrong. Sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. Because in order to absolutely decide, to define what is good and what is evil, you need to have perfect knowledge. You need to have perfect uh, omniscience and, and wisdom and know all things so you can understand completely the situation about what is going to happen when you do this. What's going to happen when you do this? What are the consequences? What's, what's the very nature of the universe? You've got to be God in order to really decide what is right and what is wrong. So our role really as creatures... It's to let God decide what's right and what's wrong and to receive that, that knowledge from him. So, so that was Adam before anything happened here. When Adam was created, he didn't have the knowledge of good and evil. Adam, the thought never crossed his mind to say, I'm going to decide what's right and what's wrong for myself. He just let God decide. He let God say, don't eat from the tree. That's wrong. Name the animals. Love your wife. That's right. So God says to Adam, I want you to stay this way. I want you to not eat this tree. I don't want you to try to have the knowledge of good and evil. I want you to be a creature to accept from me what's right and what's wrong. But then God gives Adam the chance to do just that. So why would God do that? Why would God say, uh, I, I want you to be a creature. I want you to just accept from me what's right and wrong. And then put a tree right there and say, don't do this. And then give Adam the chance to decide for himself what's right or wrong. Why would God do that? Well, at a certain level, it gets very dangerous to ask the question, why, about God, as if we can absolutely, totally understand what's going on in his mind, to, to completely fathom what the reason why he would do something, and it's, that sort of puts us in the position of God to say, oh, I know why he's doing that. I don't even know why another person does something. I don't even know why I do things sometimes. So to, to say, why did God do this? Well, it's a little presumptuous. Uh, but one answer that, that seems to be in line with the flow of the story here is it, it seems like what God's doing is that he's giving Adam an opportunity to trust him. And he's saying to Adam, I made the world. I made this whole world. I made it for you. I've, I've given you everything. It's all very good. Now, in this one area, will you simply just trust me? Will you, will you show me that you love me enough to just obey me? I'm not going to explain everything to you. I'm not going to give reasons for why you do this or don't do this. I'm just going to say, don't eat from this tree. Can you trust me? It, it seems like God is giving Adam an opportunity to be more than an animal or to be more than a robot, but to really respond to God, to say, you have given me all of this and now I'm going to respond to you in love and trust and obedience by, by obeying this one command that you give me. In, in a way... I think it's a great gift from God, an empowering gift from God to say to Adam and then ultimately to Eve, I want you to have the ability 
to show me that you love me. So show me by obeying. Unfortunately, uh, they don't do it, right? Uh, they have this great opportunity to, to respond to God with all his love, with all his uh, wonderful gift of creation, uh, to respond in obedience and trust, and they totally blow it. They disobey the command. So we pick up the story in verse 25 of chapter 2. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. I'll just stop there for a second. Uh, so Adam and Eve blow it. They blow it. God says, here's the one command, and they disobey. They eat from the tree. Uh, now, to be fair, they had help, right? They had help. There's this serpent that shows up, and here in the text, he's not called Satan, but as we read on the Bible, and you know, everybody's consistently identified, this is Satan here, actively working to tempt Adam and Eve. Uh, he shows up, and he very, very skillfully persuades Eve, uh, almost, it's like a seduction really, uh, persuades her to eat from this tree, to disobey God. He persuades her that this is the right thing to do. It's, it's fascinating to look at it, but we'll just skim over it here. But what you, what you really see is he's mixing together lies and half-truths, uh, you know, challenging her. God's, God's not really good. He's not really good. You're really not going to die if you do this. The consequences aren't that bad. He said, just go ahead and eat it, eat it. And as she looks and she lets that lie kind of grow in her, it gives birth to the sin and she desires it and she takes it and she eats it. And verse six is just this terrible moment where the universe comes crashing down. So the woman sees it's good for food and you just, you see it happening and it's like the movie where you're just screaming at the person, don't go in the basement. Do not go in the basement. Like, you're going to get killed if you go down there, and you just, it just, it's going to happen. She reaches for the fruit, and it's like, no, don't grab the fruit. Don't, don't, don't eat the fruit. And she eats the fruit. And the world is broken. And the eyes of both are open, and they knew that they were naked. So right away, Adam and Eve, having disobeyed the command, begin to experience the consequences of disobedience. In verse 7, it says, they, Their eyes were open and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? 
And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. We'll stop there. Um, So what happens? They eat from the tree, and they drop dead right away. No, they don't. Uh, That's the impression you would have had when you... When you understand, you know, when you look back in chapters 2, verse 17, where it says, God says, when you eat it, you'll surely die. Um, so you'd think, okay, eat the tree, drop dead. Now what happens? What does happen? Um, strangely enough, what happens is that everybody starts realizing that they're naked. Okay, this is like not a, a minor point. This is all over the place. Nakedness is, is mentioned all the time. So back in chapter 2, verse 25, uh, before the, the fall, which is what we call this moment when she eats the, the fruit. Before the fall, they're both naked, not ashamed. Then in chapter 3, verse 7, as soon as they eat, the immediate thing that happens is they realize they're naked. Uh, then in, in verse 10 of chapter 3, uh, God says, uh, Adam says to God, I, I hid because I was naked. And then God says in verse 11, who told you you're naked? So there's all this talk about being naked. Uh, that seems to be the main immediate Consequence, they, they eat from the tree and, and they're naked. And, and really what I think it is, it's, it's the main immediate symptom. It's the symptom of something else that's going on here, a, a deep thing that somehow is connected with death. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny really when, when you read, and you know, in some ways it's funny, we read in, in verse 11 where God shows up and he says, uh, who told you you were naked? That's a weird question. For us, um, you know, it's it's not it's not like uh, when you got like asparagus in your teeth, and somebody's like, "Hey, you got a little something in your teeth there." You're like, "Oh, thanks, thanks for telling me." I had it. Nobody's like, "Hey, did you realize you forgot your clothes today?" Um, that's in our in our nightmares, I guess. You know, we have those dreams. You're like, "Oh my gosh, I am naked," but but this is real life, and and God has to say to them, "Who told you you were naked?" So in some way, they didn't realize before they were naked, and then something happened, a change, so they became like us. Where it's like the only thing you can think about when you're naked is the fact that you're naked. I think we're helped in understanding what happened when we think through what contexts are there even today where there's people who act sort of like Adam and Eve before the fall. Uh, one of those contexts is, is young children, right? young kids around the house. They, you have to tell them, you're naked. Do you realize you're not wearing any clothes right now? Uh, they don't. They don't. And, and what is it about them that, that makes them act that way? I, I, I think it's that there's just a total unselfconsciousness about them. They don't realize they're naked because they're not even thinking about themselves at all. They're just being. They're just living. They're just confident and going because they're not, they've, they've got no categories to even think critically about themselves or think negatively about themselves. They're not ashamed. They're just them. They're not thinking about their nakedness because they're not thinking about themselves. Uh, another category of people who kind of are like Adam and Eve before the fall, it's, it's like in chapter 2, verse 25, the man and wife were naked and not ashamed. You know, a, a husband and wife who've been together for a while and have a good loving relationship, uh, who are, are confident in one another, who know the other one's not going to tear them down or judge them or criticize them. In that context, you've got uh, nakedness without shame. You're not, you're not thinking about the fact that you're naked. You're not ashamed. You don't have to always wear clothes in front of your spouse because you've got that confidence, that security in the relationship. 
I think this is Adam and Eve before the fall. They've, on the one hand, they're totally unselfconscious. They're not thinking about themselves. On the other hand, they are completely confident and secure, not just in the love of one another, but in the love of God in their lives. There's, there's a, a complete uh, and utter self-forgetfulness that they experience as, as human beings created in the image of God and living in perfect relationship with God such they don't, eat, they don't think about the fact they're naked because they don't think about themselves at all. They're just living with the confidence and boldness of a young child, secure in the love of God like a husband is secure in the love of his wife. And then when they take from the fruit and they lose that relationship with God, it's like all of the sudden, for the first time in their lives, they realize they're naked, they're, they're, they're creatures, they're alone, they're, they're finite, they're fragile, there's, there's something to be ashamed of. They begin to look at themselves and they think, I've got to cover up. It's like for the first time they've realized that they're a creature apart from God and it scares them. Again, if we want to tread the, uh, the ground of, of nightmares, um, this is like the, the one, I don't know if you have this one, but like where you're, you're in the grocery store as a kid and you're there with your mom and you see that cereal that you love or you just you know, chocolate frosted sugar bombs or whatever it is and you're just, you're, just, you're just looking at that cereal and you see, oh, there's a toy inside and you're just, oh, I just I love it. And then all of a sudden you look up and your mom's not there. And, and like where the second before, you're totally secure, you're totally fine because his mom's here, it's, I, she's got this. You look up and she's not there. And you're insecure. And all of a sudden just this, this wave of panic and anxiety and fear comes over you because now you know you're alone. I think that's what it was like for Adam and Eve. They're just, they're just living in the garden. Life is good. They've got God's there. He loves them. Nothing can go wrong. And all of a sudden, they look up, and he's not there. And it's like, what are we, we're alone. What are we going to do? We've got to hide. We've got to cover ourselves up. This is scary. They lost the relationship with God, and it was terrifying. This is the major consequence of sin. Um, you know, God, God had said, the consequence is you will die. Well, now we understand what that means. You know, the first big consequence of that is a loss of relationship with God, a, a death to our, our security a death to our, our confidence, a death to our uh, souls. We've lost our relationship with God. Another question that might come up at this point is to say, well, why did it have to cost the relationship with God? Why couldn't God just say, ah, you shouldn't have done that. I told you not to eat the tree. You ate from the tree. You shouldn't have done that. All right, do over. I'm still here. I'm not going to leave you. Why did it have to cost the relationship with God? And again, I think it's, it's because this is not just some sort of technicality. This is, this is a relationship, right? This is God saying to Adam and Eve, uh, he's not just giving them a rule 
to follow, some sort of performance metric to, to achieve. He's saying, I, I, want to, I want you to trust me. I'm going to trust me. I'm, I'm giving you some authority, some, some ability here. I want you to trust me to not eat this fruit. And then they break that trust. It's, it's a relational betrayal. So by its very nature, it hurts the relationship. It's like if you've got two friends, um, you, know, you're, you, know, you and your friend work together at a job and you go on a vacation for a week. And, and, and when you come back, you find that during that week that you were gone, your friend used your absence to undermine you and to try to take your position from you. Uh, that's not just a technicality. That's not just breaking some little unspoken rule like friends don't steal each other's friends' jobs. Uh, that's a betrayal. That's a gut-level betrayal of your trust, and that's going to break the relationship. It's like a husband coming home uh, to an open computer screen, and ac- computer screen and, and accidentally reading his wife's email and finding that she has been pursuing a relationship with an old boyfriend. Uh, that's not just the violation of the you don't go after your old boyfriend's rule once you're married. That's, that's a, a violation of trust. That's a betrayal. That's I trusted you and you took that trust and used it to stab me in the heart. Okay, that's what's happening here. God's saying, I gave you the freedom to obey me and you took that freedom and you tried to be me. You tried to steal my role. You tried to be the creator after all that I've made for you, all I've done for you, after everything I've given you. You said, that's not enough. I want to be God. All right, that's going to break the relationship. It's not just about the technicality of eating a fruit. It's about saying to God, I want to be God, and God will not tolerate that. And everything that's wrong with the world flows out of this betrayal. So in verse 16, or so in verse, uh, yeah, let's, let's skip a second, we'll come back to these, but in verse 16, God begins to dole out more of the consequences, and he says in Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So, Part of the effects of sin is that family life gets made hard. It's difficult. It wasn't meant to be hard. Uh, Family life was supposed to be easy. Having kids was supposed to be easy. Being married was supposed to be easy. But because of sin, because of this betrayal, the breaking of the world, now having children is extremely painful. And of course the pain of having kids doesn't stop once you give birth to them. Uh, There's still pain involved throughout the entire time. The, um, the relationship between husband and wife says you shall des- your desire shall be for the husband. That's not a good desire. If you read another chapter, you see that's the same desire that sin has to rule over us. So this is a desire for the wife to, to, to gain kind of domineering control over her husband. And the, and the husband's response in a sinful heart is to rule over the wife. So there's this marriage instead of being this harmonious partnership is this the struggle for control, husband and wife, he's trying to gain control over the other. And to Adam in verse 17, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God says to man, now the effects of the sin, in addition to damaging the family life that you experience together, it's, it's, it ruins the world. The ground is cursed. We're going to have weeds and thorns and thistles. And I think if you read on in, in, in places like Romans 8, you, you see this is not just talking, it's not just limited only to thorns and thistles, but the very, just the, the frustration, the futility that's in this world of, of, of sickness and, and hurricanes and, and tornadoes and earthquakes and uh, and just the, and rust and the frustration of things not working out the way they're supposed to. God says, this is a consequence of losing your relationship with me. It's the very cosmos, in some ways, are fundamentally broken. It's the Christian answer to what's wrong with the world. It's that Adam and Eve betrayed God and lost their relationship with him. And ever since then, we've been walking around with this hole in our hearts, this nakedness. And the effects of that have rippled out to every corner of creation. It's painful to have kids. It's difficult to have relationships. Work is hard. There's weeds, and creation itself is broken. And in the end, you die. there's There's the physical death. You're from dust to dust you return. This is what's wrong with the world. This is what we say is wrong with the world. Now, if you watch, if you watch Avatar, uh, they'll say what's wrong with the world is that we're not connected enough to nature. Okay? Or if you, if you read the, the science magazines, they'll say what's wrong with the world is we don't have enough technology. We're not smart enough. People haven't ed- met, aren't educated enough. Okay, but, but what's wrong with the world, what the Bible says is what's wrong with the world is that we have lost our relationship with God. And everything flows out of that but we're not without hope. Because in the midst of the fall, even here, there's hope of redemption. In Genesis 3.20, just finishing out the chapter, it says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden to Eden, of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they're, they're driven out, but they're not forsaken. We are not forsaken. They get, they get kicked out of the garden, but it's not a get out of here, I never want to see you again sort of kicking out. It's more of a tough love, get out of here because it's not good for you to stay here. I'm going to make a way to make this right. God shows his love for Adam and Eve even in, in acknowledging that, yeah, they are naked. They do experience that shame. He gives them a little better clothing than some measly fig leaves that they tried to cobble together. He, he gives them proper clothes he sends them out. But even before this, in Genesis three fourteen and 15, this part we skipped, there's a clearer, at least, I mean, if you know where to look, clearer promise of redemption. God's not done with humanity. He's not done with us. Just because we disobeyed and lost the relationship, it doesn't mean it's over. And we see this when God addresses the serpent. 
In Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now this isn't fully developed here, but, but what we have in, in this verse, specifically verse 15, is a promise from God that there will be a redeemer. There will be a hero. There will be a savior. There will be someone who will destroy the serpent. Look in verse 15 again. He says, there's going to be there's enmity. There's going to be fighting between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he says, he, so there's going to be one particular offspring, he who will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So, there's going to be, you recognize that's, that's a, a disproportionate fight. So the, the snake will bruise the heel, but, but the one who comes will bruise the head of the serpent. It's going to crush the serpent, going to crush Satan underneath his feet. There's going to be one coming, this promise says, who will destroy the destroyer. We're going to flesh this out over the next few weeks. Because the Bible fleshes this out. As you read through the Bible, this is the major storyline. Who is this one who is coming to destroy the serpent? So we'll, we'll fill in the details, but let me just tell you right now, it's Jesus. Okay, it's Jesus. See, in the gospel, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. That when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, he crushed Satan. He defeated evil. He made the way for us to be reconciled to God. So, you know, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. God puts a, an angel, this flaming cherubim, scary dude, at the corner of, at the gate of the garden with a flaming sword saying, you can never come back in here. There's a huge barrier between us and God because we've sinned. We've broken this relationship. We've, we've blown it. How do we get made right with God? How do we come back into fellowship with him? We need an Adam who never sinned. We need one who was given the opportunity to trust God and to obey him and to love him and never blew it. That's who Jesus is. Jesus came. Jesus, you remember uh, in the wilderness, early in his ministry, Jesus goes off for 40 days? For 40 days, I think, you know, the impression I get from Genesis 3 is that this happened in like an afternoon. Satan tells him, hey, eat the apple. It's not that bad. And they're like, all right, I'll eat the apple. For 40 days, Jesus is in the wilderness and Satan's tempting him. And saying, you know, uh, worship me. Uh, you know, abandon God's plan for you. I turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to follow him. In his whole life, he does this. He always obeys. He always loves God. He always follows him. And so he never deserves to die. But he does. Not because he deserved it, but because we do. And in that death, he paid the penalty for our sin. He took the death that we deserved. He, he takes all the, um, the, all the sin and all the wrong that we have done, and he takes it on himself and dies there in our place. And then God takes all the righteousness of Jesus, all that perfect obedience, all the good that he has done, and he puts it on us so that we're no longer naked but clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus. 
And so God offers us. The, the, the big problem, the problem with the world is the loss of relationship with God, and God offers us a solution freely. We put our faith in him. We're restored and renewed. So where does that leave us today? I mean, for some of us, um, well, for all of us, it helps us see what the main need is. Uh, what we really need is to be reconciled to God. So we look in the world and we see brokenness. We see sin. We see just things not going right. Cancer is evil, right? Tornadoes can be scary. Weeds are a pain. Okay, but those are not our main problem. That is not what's wrong with the world. That's a symptom of what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world is that every one of us needs to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. So, if you've never done that, then you, what you need is not to, to go to the store and get an extra bottle of Roundup so that you get rid of those weeds. Okay? That'll solve your weed problem, won't solve your cosmic problem. Um, you know, you don't just need chemotherapy. I'm grateful that we have it. I'm grateful there's treatment for cancer. Yes, we should pursue healing when we're sick, but that's not the fundamental need. You could get your cancer healed and still be alienated from God. See, what we need is to be reconciled. So if you've never done that, then you need to do that today. Or if you feel like you've drifted away and you're like, I know that I'm, I'm you know, legally right with God, I know I'm a Christian, I've been born again, and yet in my life right now, I feel so far away from him, I feel so distant, I don't think the relationship with God is the reality of my life. You've got to understand, that's what you were created for. Unless you have a vibrant and real relationship with God, you're never going to be satisfied. Even if you take care of all the problems in your life apart from that. So all of us, need to humble ourselves before God. We're never going to be whole until we're reconciled with him. Having done that, I think this also helps us to help us just keep living day by day. Um, this helps us to, to watch a movie like Avatar and to not want to kill ourselves the next morning. It, it helps us. We understand that, that life, life is very good. In a lot of ways, all the time, life is very, very good. But at the same time, in lots of ways, life is very, very bad. We need to understand, we were made for paradise. So it really does hurt when things don't work out the way we want them to. We can affirm that sin is bad, that pain is bad, that the world has fallen. And it helps us. I think it helps us. It helps me. To just be able to say that, right? When bad things happen, we don't have to be like, well, God must have been asleep at the wheel. Or, or God maybe not be that loving or that good or that strong. To Maybe he just he let this one happen. This one got by him. Um, we don't have to say, well, it's all meaningless. It's just random stuff. It just happens. It's not good or bad. It just is. No, we can say when bad things happen, it's because we live in a fallen world that's in need of redemption. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And the really good news is it's not the way it's always going to be. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. We'll get there in a couple weeks. For now, I want to close in prayer, and then we'll take some questions.
Father, thank you that you love us. Genesis 3 could have been the end of the Bible. It could have been the end of our story. It could have been the end of your grand experiment to create human beings in your image who love you and worship you. And it should have been. But by your grace and your love, you, yeah, you kicked us out, but you made a way for us to come back. And I'm grateful for the reconciliation we found. I'm grateful that you've given us salvation through Jesus Christ, a restoration of relationship with you. I pray that you'd work in us, Lord, that we would have every day a deeper and more real relationship with you, and we look forward to the time when you will return and make all things right. So we pray that you would come, Lord Jesus. Amen.